Hey, hey, beer fans! Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, and the now scheduled to be released in June, Simple Homebrewing. Yeah, boy, I'm really excited to see what it looks like. Well, it, you and me both. Now, between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. And on today's episode, well, once again, we have reached an even divisor of 12. And if you've been listening to the show for a while, you know what that means. That's right. It's time for all your questions and all of our answers. You know, I'm just in awe of your math skills there. Well, a fancy degree from MIT will get you there. <laughs> so, no pub, no no quick tip, no something other. It's all questions, all the time. And it's time for us to get to it. Yeah, that's right. And uh, we'll see what kind of answers we can come up with for all these questions. But before we do, we're going to take a quick break so our sponsors can tell you about some of the great things they do. So please stick around. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 45,000 individuals who share a common passion, beer. Since 1978, the HA has promoted and advanced the most delicious hobby in the world, providing brewing resources, supporting homebrewer-friendly legislation, offering exclusive member deals at breweries and homebrew shops, and hosting one-of-a-kind events like HomebrewCon and the National Homebrew Competition. Join your beer-loving peers at homebrewersassociation.org. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. So, thank you for sticking around listening to those sponsors. Remember, if you have any chance to interact with those sponsors, tell them that you heard about them on Experimental Brewing. It helps them know that they're spending their money wisely. And, of course, before we get into questions, we have to give you the announcements because, well, I think we're contractually obligated to. And the first announcement is, if you did not pay attention, last week's episode of The Brew Files is out and live. It's all about anniversaries because last week was the second anniversary of The Brew Files. That's right, we've been doing it for two years now, and I sat down with my good friend Jeremy Raub of Eagle Rock Brewing Company, who's having their ninth anniversary, and we talked about how to make an anniversary beer before the conversation went really sort of strange and delved deep into new uses for amylo enzymes. Everybody's been using them for Brute IPAs, but it's not just for Brute IPA anymore, so give that a listen and learn something new. We also want to remind you that March 22nd and 23rd, we're going to be at the Brew Your Own Boot Camp in Asheville, North Carolina, along with our buddy Marshall Schott. We'll be teaching a class on homebrew experimentation, and there's going to be lots of other good people there teaching classes. There's going to be John Palmer, uh, 
you know, I don't even know who all is going to be there, but there's a bunch of good stuff. So go to byobootcamp.com to check it out and uh, enter the code experimental brewing for an additional discount, which is good up through the 22nd of January. Yeah, so get in there, get there early, and get there often. You'll be able to actually spend all day with Marshall, Denny, and myself. And we'll be talking. <laughs> That's a scary thought. Well, we'll be talking about experimentation. We'll be talking about the things that we've learned, the things that we think is necessary to make a good beer, as well as what makes a good experiment. And, well, you know, dirty little secret, there will be beer as well, because naturally. So go to byobootcamp.com and register. And yeah, until January 22nd, there's a discount. After that, the prices go up. So come on, it's Asheville. It's going to be a great beer town. Let's go see it together. Don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can click the ahabrewswag.com, code word experimental. And hey, by the way, right now they're having a giveaway with Imperial Yeast. Go to brewswag.com and you could potentially win a year of Imperial Yeast Oh, sweet is that? Yeah, that's pretty cool, huh? Yeah, use the code word experimental at brewswag.com. You can also click on the Amazon Brewers, Friends, or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, well, which for this part of the year, we're still determining it. <laughs> we're looking for a new charity to uh, help out. So if you guys have any ideas, please email us. We would like something that's kind of like... Uh, large scale as opposed to just in your neighborhood so that everybody can get in on it. So please, if you have any ideas for a charity we can help out, send them to podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Our last charity was Nowzad, helping uh, soldiers bring home animals from uh, Afghanistan. And we'll be sending them a check for about 1200 bucks. Thanks to all of you. So again, thank you. Sweet. All right. Now, this is normally where we do feedback or go to the pub or do something like that, but that's not what we do on every 12 episode, right? We get into your questions. That is correct. So let's get into some questions here. Uh, and we're going to start with the general questions because, well, why not start outwards and work inwards? Right on. So, Denny, you, you want to read that first one? Sure. The first question comes from Craig Vall from Facebook. Craig asks, I would like to know if you can recommend any resources for beer styles outside of the BJCP guidelines. I'm interested in brewing old school beers, particularly German styles, since IPA variants are so hard to avoid now. <laughs> what, you mean the 20 varieties of IPA aren't satisfying you, Craig? Now, um, I think uh, this is kind of hard because with the knee-jerk answer that I always want to give is go buy books. There are lots of books out there. Lots of books out there that will provide things. And the first one that pops into mind is Andreas Krenmeier's book about, uh, you know, sort of ancient German styles or old German styles. We talked to him on the Brew Files last year. And I'll tell you what, if you want to go dig into some old school German stuff, totally go for it. And then, yeah, obviously, you've got the Goza book from uh, Brewers Publications that just came out. And even those old Brewers Publications style books, which a lot of people... um sort of dig into for their accuracy in a lot of places are really good fonts for at least getting inspired with new ideas. Other than that, my primary thing is go listen to podcasts, go troll the internet, go, you know, go through Facebook. There are about 50,000 brewing groups on Facebook and some of those are devoted to old German beers and, or like take milk, the funk to a lot of, you know, sort of sour beers. So really these days there's so much information out there Ooh, and even the other one, Google Books. Go to 
books.google.com and do a search for German and beer, and you'll be surprised. One that I would recommend, uh, it's 30 years old, but it's got a whole bunch of great information as well as gorgeous pictures, is Michael Jackson's New World Guide to Beer. Pretty much uh, covers Europe uh, country by country, beer style by beer style, and uh, Michael was just thorough <laughs> in, uh, in getting the information in there. I've been uh, digging through it and getting ready for my uh, upcoming trip to Belgium. So it's a bit hard to find, but uh, I think you'll be well rewarded if you can get a hold of a copy. Well, and also on the top of that, uh, uh, Horst uh, uh, Dornbusch, he he released a book not too long ago called uh, Beer Styles from Around the World. And uh, again, Horst is one of those guys that people like to, you know, sort of critique his historical accuracy. But again, if you're just kind of looking for you know inspiration, it's not a bad place to go. Beer Styles from Around the World, it's not the cheapest book in the world. But like I said, it does provide you some really good, you know, inspiration. Yep, it certainly does. Okay, next question comes from Peter, Peter Simons of Australia. Hi, Peter. And he said, I'm curious what you guys think about the effects, if any, of trube in the wart when taking a hydrometer measurement. I did spin it both times, and he included a, a picture of two samples, that, or sorry, the same sample, two different measurements. And he says... I did spin uh, spin the hydrometer both times, and it seemed to read 1060, give or take. So, Denny, any impact? Um, you know what? Peter's results align completely with mine. I know there are people that say that uh, Trube in the Wirt will affect your hydrometer reading. I just have never, ever found that to be true. And Peter shows us graphic evidence. He has the same sample measured an hour and a half apart. He didn't filter it or anything like that, but he did let it uh, settle and clear. And the readings are oh, within a half or one point of each other, certainly within the, the margin of error of measurement accuracy. So I would have to say that, Peter, I'm in total agreement with you. Unless you have enough trube in the word that uh, your hydrometer is actually sitting on a big stack of it in the uh, test flask, it's not going to make any difference at all. Yeah, and wasn't this like a subject of long debate on the HBD way back in the day? And I just remember something about ping pong balls floating in wort, that sort of thing. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's the there's the old uh, poodles in a swimming pool argument. Also, <laughs> there you go, poodles in a swimming pool. But yeah, the consensus seems to be as long as you're reasonable with the amount of trube in the jar, you're okay. Yep, I, I think so too. All righty, Drew's got this next one, and it comes from Liam Doherty of Manchester, UK, via email. Liam says, I'm a long-term listener and wanted to send an email of appreciation for the hard work you've both put into these podcasts. Well, thanks, Liam. We appreciate that back. You've kept me entertained throughout many commutes and provided me with confidence and knowledge in my relatively short time as a home brewer. God, that's scary, isn't it? No, I think it's, I think it's good. <laughs> I think the most valuable thing I have learned is to stop overthinking things, relax and just brew. All right, buddy, you have you have it now. Learn from the brew day and take it from there. As you say, if you're not enjoying it, then you're doing it wrong. I have a few questions that I'd really appreciate if you could answer on the podcast. Describe your brewing philosophy omitting the word balance. Take that, Drew. If you were to build your homebrew setups from scratch, what would it consist of? What experiments do you have in the pipeline? I wish you all the best. Keep up the great work. And hopefully I'll speak to you again soon. Long live the ukulele. 
<laughs> There's my man. Liam, you had me right up until that last point. So let's <laughs> tackle these questions in order. I'll answer mine first, and then, Denny, you can follow in. Okay. Admitting the word balance, how do I describe my brewing philosophy? Simplicity. Yeah, I think I think uh, simplicity would be mine, and I also think it would be make sure that everything that goes into a brew has a reason to be there. Yeah, I mean, I think it's we we generally come at this from different sides, but yeah, I mean, to me, it's what is the exact minimum number of things I need to get to the impact that I want my beer to have. So for me, it's simplicity. The simpler I make my recipes, the better they almost always end up tasting. I think a lot of times people overthink and get in their own way and shoot themselves in the foot. Yeah. And I don't know if for me, I don't know if stripping them down to the simplest I can make them is the way I'd put it, but I do definitely try to avoid extraneous ingredients and it won't really do anything to enhance the recipe. All right. Next question was, uh, if you were to build your homebrew setups from scratch, what would it consist of? Well, I think that depends upon how much money I had. If I had enough money where I wasn't going to worry about it, I think I'd probably just go and buy a grandfather. <laughs> just, yeah. just for just for simplicity's sake. Although I try and get the two forty volt version. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. If I was trying to build it on the cheap, I think I would totally go for a simple brew-in-the-bag type setup. I don't know. There's a part of me, I think, that's still attracted to the idea of having a separate mash vessel, like so doing brew-in-a-bag brew but in a cooler. Um, I, I don't know. For some reason, I still just have a hard time with the brew-in-the-bag and the kettle, even though lots of people make fantastic beer that way. So I, I would think that would be my simple choice. I'd have to say that my setup is pretty much what I've evolved into now. I uh, use a mash and boil for a hot liquor tank. I still mash in my old cooler with the uh, stainless steel hose braid in it. I boil in a converted keg kettle on a propane burner. Uh, I use a pump to transfer liquid around so I don't have to lift anything. And I ferment in a 10-gallon corny keg. And I guess that that would, at this point, be my ideal homebrew setup because that's what it has come to be after lots of other trials of things. I was going to say, yeah, you've just reached your platonic ideal. Yeah. And then as for the experiments in the pipeline, well, we could tell you, but that would be telling. <laughs> but no, needless to say, one of the one of the goals for the podcast this year is, yes, definitely increase the amount of experimentation that we've done. You saw the experiments come out from the uh, mash capping, and there's some more of those coming down the line as well. But we have about, I don't know, 50 ideas in the pipeline. It's just a matter of getting them executed. Yeah, right. Uh, for me, it's uh, getting back to my American mild recipe. Uh, Yakima Chief was kind enough to have a box of uh, American Noble cryo hops on their way to me, and I'm going to use those to get back to developing that recipe. And one thing that I am really dying to do is redo my decoction experiment from 15 years ago or so and uh, try and do it better and see what kind of results I get from that. I'm not expecting a lot of difference, but I won't know till I do it. Yep. Got to go revisit the classics. That's the entire point of science. That's right. Okay. You want to read the next question? Sure. This one comes in from Neil Campbell in Essex, UK. Boy, I'm really Two British questions. That. Two British I know, questions man. in a row. It's, it's really cool to have all these uh, people from the UK uh, listen to the show. Well, well, well hold on. Uh, we've, we've had Australia and now two, two UK questions in the first four questions. Wow. So it really is a global community. Wee. Beer. <laughs> Beer. Is really? there nothing you can't do? 
<laughs> well, maybe. All right. Neil says, I'm a big fan of the podcast and was hoping I might get some advice from you as part of the upcoming Q&A episode. My sister is due to have her first child at the end of January. Congratulations, Iona. Like all responsible uncles to be, my mind immediately turned to homebrewing. Well, I think that's what uncles are for, right? I say being an uncle myself. Um, I thought it would be fun to pay homage to Drew's Mortgage Killer beer and create a special strong beer that we can stash away to enjoy when we celebrate my new niece or nephew's 18th birthday in 2037. Rest assured, I'll be keeping a few aside for quality control in the intervening years. As is proper. I'm, yeah, that's right. You don't want to have bad beer 20 years from now. I'm planning to keep it simple with a classic English barley wine. I'd love to get some tips about how I can give this beer its best chance of surviving such a long journey through time. How big a gravity should I shoot for to be safe? Are there any factors I should be paying extra special attention to? I'm particularly thinking about any ingredient considerations, extra sanitation, avoiding excess oxidation, and the best approach to packaging and storing. I'm brewing solid all-grain beer that is placed in competitions recently, but I've never had the self-control to keep a homebrew around for longer than a year or so. Any advice you have would be greatly appreciated. In order to keep beer around for longer than a year, brew more beer. <laughs> and in terms of what I would do for this sort of beer, I think you're going absolutely on the right track there, Neil, with the idea of an English barley wine. You know, go big, go uh, go malty, and you know, really kind of sell it. I mean. There are still bottles of, you know, Ballantine, the Burton Ale that they did. That's kind of their IPA barley wine thing back in the 40s. They're floating around. They're they're still somewhat alive. And obviously in Burton, there are a lot of great examples of things like J.W. Lee's or Thomas Hardy's, you know, beers that have lasted 40 plus years and kept in pretty good shape. So for me, what I would do is I would focus on keeping the malt bill relatively simple. So in this particular case, because you're going to be going big, you can really just do kind of an all Maris Otter, all you know Golden Promise or whatever your favorite good base malt is. I would probably avoid too many dark malts or at least or uh, too many crystals because there are some concerns that are out there about the long term impact in terms of you know their oxidation, uh, you know how they influence that. Uh, go with a good strong hopping to begin with because obviously you're going to need some extra protection here, but don't expect that this beer is going to have any hop character after 18 years. Um, so yeah, in terms of starting gravity, I would say start no lower than 1100. You know, I kind of start there. If you want to, if you want to be really bold, go 1140. Um, those would both work uh, pretty well anywhere in that range. Other, uh, other considerations, sanitation. Do your normal sanitation. If you're if you're brewing award-winning beer, you're already doing about the best that you can. Uh, in terms of avoiding excess oxidation, if you're really concerned about it, I mean, one, bottle conditioning is always going to be your friend here. Uh, if you're really concerned about it, though, uh, consider flushing the bottles first to minimize the amount of oxygen in the bottle. Uh, and then the best approach to packaging, use your crown caps. Don't do the wax thing. It doesn't really do anything for you. And for storage, put them in a nice box, seal the box up and go dig a hole somewhere in the ground or take advantage of a cellar that you have and lose it in a corner. Just yeah. Uh, try and try and keep those beers uh, relatively cool and away from light. I would say that uh, oxygen is going to be your biggest issue that you have to deal with. 
So you might want to try uh, purging your fermenter with CO2, and you might especially even want to try purging the bottles with CO2 before you you bottle it. Uh, Because no matter what you do, when you keep a beer that long, you're still going to have some oxidation from it. And for something like a barley wine, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But you don't want it to be undrinkable when you open it. So try and take some sort of steps to limit that. Yeah, but I I think big thing, avoid your oxidation or reduce the oxidation and also keep it cool. Yep. Not necessarily not necessarily in a fridge somewhere, but you know, keep it in a nice cool cellar so that it just does not, you know, get warm. Because yep. after all, once you get up above seventy degrees, oxygen starts to do its magic really fast. Yep. Heat, light, and oxygen are the three enemies of beer, so try and avoid all of those as much as possible. There we go. There are our general questions. I think it's now time for us to take a short break before we start digging into, well, some slightly more specific topics. All right. So stick around. We're going to take a quick break and be right back. Explore the history of tart, fruity, and refreshing Goza-style beer with the latest book from Brewer's Publication, Goza, Brewing a Classic German Beer for the Modern Era. Written by award-winning veteran brewer Fal Allen, Goza includes 27 recipes, including Sea Quench Sour from Dogfish Head Craft Brewery and Ruben Brewer's 2017 Great American Beer Festival gold medal-winning Goza. Right now, Brewer's Publications is giving experimental homebrewing listeners a discount on Goza. Go to brewerspublications.com and use code EXPERIMENTAL to take 20% off Goza. That's right, you'll save 20% when you use code EXPERIMENTAL at brewerspublications.com. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Hey, we're back, and so are you. Imagine that. It's time for some questions about ingredients now. And the first question comes from Leif Hoagland of South Carolina, who says, I have always wondered why brewers use different varieties of hops for bittering. It's my understanding that most, if not all, flavor and aroma are driven off during the boil. Other than alpha acid content, is there a reason to use one variety over another? Do some of the flavors make it through the boil, or are there different types of bitterness? Denny. Oh, what a deep, deep question this is, Leaf. Uh, yes, basically, I have found, and I think most people would agree, that different hops give you different qualities of bitterness. For instance... 
If you brewed the same recipe and bittered one batch with Magnum and another batch with Chinook, for instance, I think that you would find a difference in the quality of bitterness between those two beers. People used to think that the quality of bitterness was related to the cohumulone amount in the beers, although that seems to have been kind of debunked. Uh, I don't know if it's been completely debunked. But different kind of hops have different compounds in them and will affect the beer differently, even in bitterness. And I would swear that a bit of the flavor of the hop will come through. But keep in mind that besides the uh, iso-alpha acids that we uh, get the bitterness from, there are also uh, alpha acids, there are cohumulones that are oxidized alpha acids, and both of those contribute to bitterness. And you know, other, other compounds too. And so basically different hops will give you different qualities of bittering. Uh, and don't forget also the amount of vegetative matter. So if you're using a hop with, you know, lower alpha acid and you want the same bitterness, you're going to have more vegetative matter and that's going to make a difference. And there are other factors as well. But I, I will tell you back before everybody decided that, you know, IPAs needed to have, you know, all tropical fruit all the time and nothing else when we were all brewing West Coast IPAs with citrus and pine type characters, and we did get, you know, the first wave of these new hops coming on, you know, your Simcoe's and your Amarillo's and that. When I was making a West Coast IPA, when I tried to use just those hops, those new uh, new hops, the beers weren't quite satisfying to me. So what I ended up doing was I'd always just sneak a small portion of Chinook into the bittering. So I'd like right. bitter with Warrior. And like a tiny addition of Chinook just to give a little bit of that raspy hit. And I'm fairly certain that came from Chinook, but this is something that we do want to test. Yeah, I think there, there we go. There's an experiment for us. But I mean, my personal preference is to not use Magnum for an IPA because I like a real firm slap in the face from a bitterness in the IPA. On the other hand, if I'm making, you know, maybe like an alt beer or, or something like that, uh, you know, a Pilsner or something, Magnum might be a really good choice for that. So mm -hmm. I guess until we can do some more experimenting, the best thing for you to do, Leaf, is play around, brew the same beer uh, twice, or maybe split a batch of wort into two boils, use different bittering hops, and let us know what you think. Indeed. So, next question. Next question is for you, and it comes from Colton Alcott via email. Colton says, I recently purchased some used equipment from a person stepping out of home brewing, and with it, he gave me the rest of his stockpile of hops. Now, the real goal was to obtain the glass carboys he was selling on the cheap. I found myself putting the rest aside because he could not remember when he bought it, and there were no expiration or packaging dates. He was able to tell me that it had been about a year and a half since he last brewed. There are a total of five one-ounce packages of whole Simcoe hops, all still sealed. Should I toss them, or should they still be good? Well, I really, that comes down to how they were stored. So if you know that they were kept, for instance, cold, like in a freezer or something like that, they have a better chance of being good. I mean, remember, there are commercial breweries out there that are still using hops from you know the 2016-2015 crops. So as long as hops are properly stored, they can actually last pretty well. But here's the real answer. You got hops on the cheap. So sacrifice one of those one-ounce packages, open it up, and give it a smell. If the hops smell good that are in that package, then... Boy, how do you, you got yourself four ounces of relatively cheap hops to use? So that's my yeah, recommendation. 
and, and by by still smell good, we mean that they still have you know the the hoppy goodness you expect from Simcoe. Uh, danger signs, or if they smell like cheese or dirty socks or something like that. Yeah, or uh, vegetative, or I mean, yeah. if the hops don't smell right, you know what it is. Yeah, that's right. If if uh, you've smelled Simcoe hops before, you should know what they smell like. And if those hops don't smell like that, don't use them. Now, our next question comes from a very familiar name and face to us, Eric Pierce, our good old Igor from Massachusetts. And he threw in this ingredient question that says, Another one for the crazy ideas file. What happens if you use a lactose with the enzyme in a brute IPA recipe? Will it chew through that too? Or do you get a skim milkshake IPA? Oh, Eric. <laughs> I should have known he'd make a joke like that. Well, assuming uh, that you really want to know, the answer is that the enzyme wouldn't do anything at all. So uh, I did some research on this, Eric, and it's not a question of more enzymes uh, making the lactose convert into something more fermentable. It's a question of that the lactose is not able to be converted at all by the enzyme, no matter how much you put in it. So, you know, you could theoretically make a brewed IPA, put lactose in it, and kind of balance things out, uh, you know, counteract each other, and end up with a milkshake IPA that was kind of like what you originally intended without the lactose or the enzyme. Yeah, it would be, well, it would be a dry-shaked uh, IPA. But <laughs> yeah, remember that enzymes have very specific things that they can act on. I mean, they're not... You know, they're not universal tools for the most part. So the alpha amylase in the amylo that people are adding to do brood IPA, as far as I'm aware, and Denny, you said you did research on it, doesn't act on lactose. So it makes perfect sense. Yep, exactly. All righty. The next one is for Drew, and it comes from our buddy Paul Nicodem in Australia, who, being the wise ass he is, says, what's the specific gravity of an unladen swallow? Yes, African swallow. Anywho, seriously, here is my question. How many times during a brew session do you take a gravity reading? I have to admit, I only do an OG reading. Rarely do I do pre-boil. So what, what's your theory, man? It depends. Um, <laughs> no, usually, usually what I end up doing is I will do a, if I'm unsure about the recipe, if it's a recipe that, that I'm either doing for the first time or it's a new piece of equipment that I'm using for the first time, I'll be a little bit more persnickety. I have a nice digital refractometer, so it, it takes me two seconds to do this. Um, but I will do a reading of the first runnings. I will do a, a pre-boil OG, and then I will do a, a read of the OG at the point in time when I think the boil should stop. And if it's reached the level that I want it to be at, then I'll... I'll start chilling one on. So typically I'll do three OG readings if it's something that I'm unsure of. Um, but if it's a recipe that I've brewed a thousand and one times, like say my experimental Saison recipe. Yeah. I pretty much read, <laughs> read it right when it's going into the fermenter and go, bon voyage. Um, and this is different than say, taking a look at like what a professional brewery does. If you go and you look at like what a well-organized professional brewery is doing, they are taking gravity readings out the wazoo. Uh, you know, they're doing multiple mash readings. They're doing multiple runoff readings and multiple kettle readings as well uh, at the ones who are really persnickety. Um, but yeah, I don't go that far. Like I said, if it's a beer I I know and I love and a, a thing I've done a thousand times, it's one reading. If it's something I'm being a little bit more cautious about, three. 
Yeah, I, I do pretty much the same thing. I, I take a, a reading of the first runnings. I take a reading uh, pre-boil when I have both first and second runnings in the kettle, and uh, I actually let that boil for about a minute to make sure that they're they're mixed well before I take a reading. I figure at that point there's not going to be any concentration or boil-off to uh, to screw up the reading. And then when I get towards the end of the boil, I start taking more readings because, like Drew, I don't boil for a set amount of time. Uh, I don't boil to a set amount of volume. I have an idea both of what the time and volume should be. But what I really care about is the gravity of the beer. So I boil until I get the original gravity that I'm going for. I will add two exceptions to my rule here. One is which if when I get that pre-boil OG, I've collected too much volume and the OG is way too low, then I'll start boiling for a while to try and concentrate the wort a little bit. I'll do a calculation to see, okay, what volume should I be at? And then I'll check the OG when I'm about that that volume before I add the hops. So I'm not yeah. overbittering. Uh, that, if that happens, I do check more often. The other exception, which is on the entirely opposite end of the spectrum, which is if I've been drinking too much while brewing, then I won't even bother checking the OG on the way into the fermenter. <laughs> yeah, I've had that experience too. Yeah, and I definitely, I, I definitely uh, will take readings before I and put any hops in. Uh, so, say for the last fifteen minutes or so, because I want to make sure that my flavor and aroma hops don't turn into bittering hops. And also, the one question that we didn't answer: What is the specific gravity of an unladen swallow? Yes, African. I don't know. Ah! <laughs> I'm not even going to guess. Yeah, good, uh, good old Monty Python reference. All right, next question. It comes from uh, Joe Rosenblatt in Philadelphia. He says, I started homebrewing two years ago on the Grandfather. I never brewed before with any other equipment. My question is, since the all-in-one brew systems have become so popular, is it necessary to heat the strike water up to mashing temperature before adding the grains? Obviously, I see why this is a must when using a cooler to mash. What would happen if I added grain to cold water and let the system bring the mash up to temperature as it recirculates? Dincenzo? Well, Joe, you can certainly do that, but you're going to end up with uh, maybe slightly different results because what you're going to be, in effect, doing is a continuous step mash. And what's going to happen is that your mash will end up spending a lot of time at lower temperatures, uh, you know, say, obviously below 125, 130 degrees, so what you're doing is kind of like an extended protein rest. And with the highly modified malts that are around that we uh, we all end up using, that can really end up giving you a thin, headless beer. So, you know, it, it kind of depends on what you, what you're going for if uh but I would I would recommend not doing that other than maybe as an experiment. And to Danny's point, I mean, there are places that do continuous ramp type mashes. And a lot of times it's when they're trying to go for like a super dry, super clear type of beer. The other thing I think that you'll also find is you're going to spend a lot more time ramping up to temperature doing it this way than you would heating the water initially because you have so much more thermal capacity in the mash. Not to mention the fact that now you add, add in the risk of if the pump clogs or something happens to your recirculation, you know, then you're going to also have issues potential issues, I should say, with, you know, stuff burning on the bottom of that grandfather. So uh, it's usually just a better idea just to heat the water and, and keep it going, unless you really want to try and do a continuous mash. But even the continuous mash people usually strike hot. They just strike a lot lower before starting to ramp up continuously. 
I think I'd be more inclined to give this a try if I had the 240-volt version of the grandfather, because in that case, it's going to end up heating a lot faster, and you won't be spending as much time at those lower temperatures. But as all of us 120-volt grandfather users know, um, it takes a long time to get up the temp in there. So you would, again, be spending a lot of time in the low-temperature protein rest area, and uh, unless you have under-modified malt that's specifically meant to do that, I think you could end up with a, a beer that was not what you intended it to be. Yep. But as in all cases with this sort of stuff, give it a try. Let us know. The next one goes to Drew from Hayden Charter in San Diego. And I can't wait to weigh in on this one also. <laughs> I'm under the impression that neither of you are in favor of decoctions making a difference in brewing but I'm still inclined to try it out and feel like you may have the knowledge or resources to answer my question about the process. I plan to brew a Munich Dunkel and would like to incorporate a decoction mash. I've read that not only does this enhance the malt character, which is suggested for the style, but it actually changes the pH of the beer. I'm curious how or if I should be considering this when utilizing brewing water and determining my water profile. Why? <laughs> why no i get it you want to play around because it's a traditional process and uh yeah no it's fine uh, i'm not a decoction fan you're right neither is denny which is the reason why he's like ooh, ooh, ooh. um here's the thing if you're going to do a decoction mash none of the none of the people i know who are decoction fanatics uh, and i know a few of those they're nice people none of them do anything funky for their mash chemistry, you know, in terms of adjusting for pH or incorporating or accommodating for any sort of change from the decoction. So I think at least based on the experience of things I've, I've seen from people and I haven't read anything about this and I haven't done it myself. The people I know who do decoctions on a regular basis do not do any adjustments beyond what you would normally do for your mash in brewing water or anything else when they do a single decoction. So that's my thing. Now, the un the unanswered, or actually, sorry, the unasked question here is, uh, if I wasn't doing this as a decoction mash, what would I do? I would say, that's why you have melanoid malt. <laughs> well, maybe. And uh, we'll save that for a couple questions from now, because we're going to be getting into decoction again. Always. I, th I think there's always a decoction question. Yeah. Do you have anything else to toss in there, buddy? Uh, I'll save it for the next decoction question. All right. So next question comes from John Hunter, who emailed us to say, I was just listening to the latest brew files and the time-saving tips when I reached one step in my brew day that I think may be slower than necessary, runoff. I've never had a good handle on how clear and fast runoff from the mash or sparge should be. I can eliminate almost all of the little grain bits in the flow, but that comes with a very slow rate. How clear should the wort be going into the kettle, and, and or can I get away with some grain bits in the boil without impact to the beer quality? Uh, interesting question, John. I was just discussing this in the AHA forum today. I would say that what you're going for in clarity is to get rid of chunks. Uh, you don't need the work to be so clear. You can read a newspaper through it with my batch sparge system. And admittedly, the speed of runoff is going to vary depending on your louder system design. But with my cooler with the uh, hose braid in it, I only have to vorl off for, oh, maybe a minute or two. I don't think it's more than, more than a quart usually and usually only a couple cups. 
before I get very clear runoff. But the bottom line is that I found that it doesn't make any difference if I get clear runoff or cloudy runoff into the kettle. It's not going to affect the beer quality at all. So I would say avoid big pieces of grain because that's where you might end up getting some tannins from. But again, you're going to have to have quite a few of them to matter. And uh, try try and speed up your runoff speed and don't worry if it's a bit cloudy. Yeah, and I think when you do your batch sparges, you you do your Vorlov, you recirc, and then you basically just flop open the valve, don't you? Yeah. You're running at full speed. Yeah, basically what I do, uh, like from going from the mash runoff to the uh, the sparge, uh, I, I just barely crack the valve on my mash tun uh, and wait until it, it clears up because what I'm doing is using the the grain as a filter bed pretty much. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so after a, a few seconds when that uh, when that runoff clears off, I pretty much open it up all the way, start transferring into the kettle. Uh, when that's all done, I stir in my sparge water, go through the same process again. And generally for getting, say, seven gallons of wort into the kettle, it takes me no more than 15 minutes from the time I start my mash runoff till the time I finish my sparge runoff. Yeah, and I, I tend to run just a little bit slower, but that's because I'm me. And I'm a little bit slower naturally. So, but no, again, I, I agree with Denny. Big chunks out. Don't worry about the rest. You know, if you're going to be very persnickety, be persnickety, but understand that you may or may not be buying yourself anything. Yeah. If it makes you feel better, go ahead and take more time and get it clearer. But uh, my experience is that it really won't make any difference in the finished beer. Yeah. I've known some crazy people who they literally recirculate the entire mash volume before they start. I've heard people. Yeah, I mean, I've heard people say, oh, I Vorloff for two hours and it still wasn't clear. And it's like, either we have very different definitions of clear or you're doing something really wrong. All right, and I'll read this question to you, Denny, because this is our next caution question. And this comes from listener Bjorn Bjornsson, who wrote into us on Facebook. And uh, Bjorn, yes, we know your other questions are out there. We'll answer them. Uh, He says, I don't know if this is a question or not, but I would really like to hear your opinion. One of my favorite beer styles is a German lager. I brew in a single vessel electric system akin to the grandfather. I've never even considered doing a decoction mash, mainly due to the additional time and hassle this brings to my brew day. But in online forums, etc., the decoction fanatics claim a purported benefit of a better, not-so-sweet melanoidin flavor, amongst other things, from the decoction mash than one gets from melanoidin malts, hence resulting in a drier, better-tasting lager. I know from earlier episodes that Denny does a concoction mash every now and then and does not find this to be so. But that is not the question. But the premise for the question, accepting the fact that there is a difference. In your opinion, using modern, fully modified malts and doing a single infusion mash, would I get the same result as I would from a single decoction mash if I, when finishing mashing, drew off a thick decoction into a separate kettle? setting this kettle to boiling for 20 to 30 minutes while I parallelly proceed with sparging the main mash and, of course, start the boil. After boiling and stirring the decoction mash, I strain off the malts and add the wort to the main kettle. So, start the ground rules there, starting with this assumption that there is a difference between decocted versus infusion, would this be a process to get somewhat close to the purported difference between the two processes? <laughs> I see, right there, I kind of feel like, like Bjorn has... 
set up a dichotomy because he starts off by assuming that there is a difference, then asks if there would be a difference. So, well, no, no, no. He's, no. he's not asking if there would be a difference. He's asking if there is a difference and suppose this is the difference with this process I'm proposing, get me that difference that the, I presume is there. The process you're proposing would work just as well as doing a decoction any other way. And, you know, I, I guess I have my own thoughts about that. But yeah, uh, I know a lot of people who do what you're doing, uh, put a separate uh, decoction on and then add it back to the kettle afterwards as opposed mm-hmm. to adding it back to the mash. It's just not going to make any difference. Uh, if that's the way you want to do your decoction, go right ahead. Well, I mean, it's not all that dissimilar to the, you know, what a lot of people here in the States call the Texas two-step. Uh, except for the Texas two-step is supposed to be doing a decoction just to kind of help you get your mash temperatures up here. Bjorn's saying, go get this thing, strain it out, and then go add it to the boil kettle. I think, honestly, this is a lot more work than what you need to go to. If what you're really trying to do is get those sort of um, blown-up malt flavors, I think you're going to get equally close just by taking part of your runoff and boiling it down to syrup. And I think that's yeah. less work. And, and, I, I and I'm still not entirely certain it's worth the entire effort. Yeah, and, and again, and you wouldn't want to do a large amount of it either because you're trying to influence the flavor um, and and you don't want to, like, overdo it. But, yeah, I mean, you know, you're in your, your process will work. I don't know if it will work any better than anything else, though. Yeah, that's something that I think definitely needs to be tested. I can't, like I said, I can't picture it giving you the purported result that you want, but that's, that's why you do it to check and see. <laughs> to find out. And, and if you do it, let us know. And also let us know how tired your arm got during that decoction. <laughs> well, fortunately he's always stirring a small part. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That uh, pretty much finishes up our questions about the mash. So stick around. And when we come back, we'll be talking general brewing process. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mecca Grade. For more information, please visit MeccaGrade.com. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my wort to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com.
Thanks for sticking around, and it's time to talk about the brewing process. And uh, I guess I have to answer the first question, so Drew's going to read it for me. Questions, questions, questions. All right, this one comes from Eric Junga, who wrote in via email to say, I have a coffee stout that refuses to pick up any carbonation, no matter what I try. I went through the usual motions of kegging the beer in a CO2 purged keg, hit it with 30 PSI of CO2 at 40 degrees for two days before dropping to 12 PSI for another week. I pulled two pints and it was completely flat. So I purged the gas lines, repurged the headspace of the keg, and hit it with 30 PSI for another two days. It was still flat. I decided to be patient and drop the pressure back to 12 PSI where it sat untouched for two weeks. And it's still as flat as the day it was kegged. I've carbonated at least a dozen kegs off this 15-pound tank so far, including two others that were kegged at the same time as this stout, which carbonated just fine. The keg has no leaks. The only thing I can think of is that the Trader Joe's cold brew coffee that I threw in during kegging had oils that floated to the top of the beer and is somehow preventing the gas from dissolving into the beer. My last-ditch effort is to shake the keg, but this is definitely a strange one to me. Have you ever experienced this before? I've searched all over, and not many people have had this problem. Yeah, that's a weird one, Eric. Um, let me see. What... Um I, I can pretty much assure you that it isn't the oil that floated on top of the beer and is somehow preventing the gas from dissolving into the beer. I, I don't think that's it. It might be oils from the coffee, uh, just the same way like a, a, a greasy beer glass will prevent a head from forming. But, you know, head formation is very different than carbonation. I mean, they're, they're kind of two related but different things. So you're saying that this beer is actually completely flat. As in no gas, no bubbles, no nothing. Yeah, and I assume that you have used this process before to carbonate other beers, you know, your time and temperature schedule. So, you know, I'm I'm kind of baffled by this one. I would have to agree with you that it might be the oils from the coffee, but not in the way that uh, that you think it is. Yeah, I don't think there's a chance in hell that uh, oils from the coffee are interfering with CO2 dissolving into solution. Um, my guess, you say there are no leaks in the keg, so I'm going to take you at your word there. Something's happening here. Maybe a pop-it in the keg is doing something weird. You know, maybe you're not really getting the gas in that you think you are. What I would actually do to test this out is go and siphon some of the beer out of the keg, you know, push it out, put it into a bottle, put a, you know, put one of those keg caps on the bottle, you know, like a carbonator cap. Yeah. Liquid bread carbonator cap. Hit that thing with more CO2 than God ever thought could be possible. Like 40 PSI. Yeah. Not, not too much because you don't want to blow up the bottle. And while you're, while you've got that attached, give it a good hard shake for, you know, two minutes, a minute, and then pop it and let it sit, you know, for just a little bit of time, just settle back and then pop that open. If that thing's not carbonated, then, then yeah, it's something with the beer. I'm still holding out some sneaking suspicion that it's something about the keg. That That's a good guess, man, because I don't know about you, but I have never had that happen to me when I've made coffee beers. Yeah, it's... I, I've had coffee oils interfere with the heading, sure, mm-hmm. but never with the you know straight-up mechanical act of getting CO2 to dissolve and form carbonic acid exactly. in the beer. Yeah, yeah. So. yeah. So I yeah your guess of uh, of a problem with the keg is good but it's just a guess. 
So, mm-hmm. Eric, if you figure it out, buddy, let us know. Yeah, but I would definitely still recommend take it into a bottle, give it a shake, and see if and see what happens. Yeah, right. and just make, make sure the beer is really cold before you do that. Well, yeah. Next question here is for Drew, and it comes in from Jeremy Wickham, one of our Igors. Jeremy says, I have a question about the Brute IPA y'all talked about a while back. I'm attending an AHA rally, and the hosting brewery is giving away two-row 1050 word to everyone who signed up. I figured this would be a good time to give this a try. Since I won't be doing a mash myself, I would add the enzymes post-fermentation. I was wondering your thoughts on adding the enzymes to a keg when fermentation completes. I would assume, you know what you get when you assume, that the enzymes would break down the sugars and the residual yeast in suspension would ferment said sugars and essentially start carbonating the beer. Now, I know I wouldn't effectively be able to tell how much CO2 would go into solution by this method, but this would give me a start on carbonating the beer. And first off, my apologies to Jeremy, because I know you sent this question in a while ago and it got lost, you know, email. Um, but uh, so I assume that the time has already come and, come and gone for this uh, 1050 warp. But here's the thing I will say. Uh, and if you go listen to the last Brew Files episode, you'll hear me talk about this in there as well with Jeremy. You can use the enzyme on the on the cold side. I would not use it during secondary because at that point in time, what's been happening with a lot of people doing that is been getting a lot of beers with a lot of diastole in them or diacetyl, however you want to say it. And mostly because what you're doing is you've got a lot of yeast in there that are sort of pooped out. They're done. They're over. And these enzymes hit and the they'll create these simple sugars. The yeast will have just enough energy to kind of get up and get those out of the way, but they don't have enough energy reserves left to be able to do the cleanup that's necessary to get rid of the diastole that's always produced. So if you're going to do this on a cold side, I would recommend taking it in earlier, say during the primary, so that you can actually have nice, healthy, active yeast. I've known a couple of companies that do that. The reason why a lot of breweries started doing it in the cold side was because they didn't want to contaminate the yeast cakes that they were going to pull off to go use in other beers. So I still think the best place to use these enzymes is on the hot side, but if you do have free wort, just like Jeremy did here. If you're going to do it, do it early enough in the process where you actually have healthy yeast. In a way, you're mimicking the exact same action that happens with the koji in sake, You know, where koji is just a, a mold of fungus that's sitting on the rice, slowly doing conversion of the rice starch to sugar, while the yeast is sitting in the solution, eating up that sugar as it appears. So that's what I would do on the cold side. I would not do it in secondary because too many people have had mixed results. Yeah, um, obviously it sounds like Jeremy wants to use this technique to carbonate the beer. And I just, I have a feeling that that's just not going to work for you. And I will say that the two best brute IPAs I've had came from Bainbridge Brewing up on Bainbridge Island, Washington. Shout out to Russell. Hey, Russell, how you doing? Um, and Russell adds the enzyme on day two of primary fermentation. And I found that these beers were exactly what I expected from a Brute IPA. They had that uh, really light body to them, but a lot of flavor and no trace of any off flavors whatsoever. What, and no trace of any off flavors whatsoever. So I, I know that that doesn't achieve your goal of trying to carbonate the beer with the enzyme. But I think that if you want to try and make a brute IPA or with 1050 word, it's going to be more like a uh, brute pale ale that I think you would be better off adding that enzyme uh, a couple days into primary fermentation. Yeah. And I think the real crux there is, I remember you could do this, but 
you'd have to figure out how far the enzyme's going to allow the beer to drop. And so, you know, Jeremy talked last week about having some of his beers drop below 1.0 in terms of specific gravity. So you'd be really, really careful about this. I, I would not do this at least the first time out. I would experience it with the work. I would see how far it dropped and then use that knowledge for the next time if your goal is to really get carbonated beer out of it. Yep, exactly. Next question comes from China. Uh, John Horn uh, writes in via email. He says, I just made a batch of Denny's Imperial Porter, but mine is a coconut variation. Because I live in China, I don't have access to proper brown malt, and I made my own. The beer color is much lighter than I anticipated, and I attribute this to using my own brown malt. All this brought up the question, is there a way to darken a beer post-fermentation? I don't really plan on doing so, but the thought of the idea of a color additions post-fermentation was an interesting one. P.S. More uke. Yes, John, my buddy. Um... Yeah, you can. Uh, what I've done before is I have used Weirman's Cinnamar to darken beer post-fermentation. You can add it to a keg. You can add it to a glass. You can add it to a bottling bucket. Uh, in case you're not familiar with Cinnamar, it's kind of like a coloring extract uh, made from mashing carafa malt, and it, it works really well. Now, in China, if you can't get brown malt, you might have a pretty tough time getting Cinnamar also. So I would think you could probably make your own by taking some really, really dark malt. I would maybe like do a dark chocolate or roast barley or something like that, or carafa if you can get it. Uh, doing a little mini mash on that, boiling it up for maybe like 10 minutes or so just to kill off all the lactobacillus that's in the malt, and then adding that in small quantities to the beer to darken it. You think that's... Yeah, Makes and that's sense. exactly what I would do. And yeah, if you can get your hands on Carafa from Wireman, then I would totally go ahead and do that. It's super cheap and easy. Use, uh, I mean, if you got a French press, you can do that. But otherwise, I mean, really just, you know, grind up the grain. The good thing with the dark grain is that you don't have to, you know, be precious and save the husk for anything. So just grind it up. You can use a coffee grinder or a food processor, turn it into a powder, mix it with, you know, usually a think the right ratio is about a two to one, you know, uh, water to malt and then let that steep for a while. How long is a while? You know, I've seen some people do it as short as an hour. You know, you can do it overnight in the fridge and then I would pour it through coffee filters and then give that thing a brief zap in the microwave. If you're worried about sanitation, bring it up to a boil and then just add it to a keg and you're done. Yeah, you definitely want to heat it above pasteurization temperature, which is about 165 Fahrenheit, before you add it into your beer because malt carries a lot of lactobacillus. And unless you want to make a sour Denny's Imperial Porter, then you want to make sure that you don't get that lactobacillus. Yep. And now that you've said that, somebody's going to do it. <laughs> okay, just don't tell me about it. Our next process question comes in via email from David Allred in Michigan. It's for Drew, and the question is, when bottling off an already carved keg, what is the procedure you use? Do you think a beer gun is absolutely necessary or a waste of $100? Oh, are we going to have opinions here? With the holidays, I've had to do this on more than one occasion and have relied on a bottling wand with a stopper connected to a picnic cap. This has worked okay, but I never felt like the carbonation level was adequate when those bottles were opened. Also, what say you to filling a bottle this way, but also throwing in a small amount of priming sugar and letting that do its thing at room temperature for a couple days before chilling again? 
Take it, buddy. Don't do that. The last <laughs> yeah, part. But, yeah, right. I I agree. Yeah. No, I, I I get what you're trying to do there, but I think that's that is a solution that you're looking at in terms of you know trying to fix a problem that's wrong with your initial process or something that you perceive as wrong with your initial process. And I don't I don't see any value in it. Yeah, I don't know how the heck you would know how much sugar to put in there. Right. So that's that's one part of it. So I, I wouldn't do that. Let's focus on fixing the first part of the problem. And for me, I do use a beer gun, but I bought my beer gun years ago, um, and I really like the device. Now, there are plenty of people out there who are doing things exactly as you've said, basically with not even actually the stopper, just using a bottling wand that goes down to the bottom of a bottle and feeding it off of a, a Cobra tap. The trick to me is you've got to make sure you have everything lined up, right? So... The beer, I actually like to carb my beer a little bit higher before I actually go and bottle it this way, just because I think that gives me a little bit of safety room, a little bit of you know extra leeway, and make sure the bottles are cold. So what I actually do is I, I make my sanitizer cold, and I so- soak the bottles in cold sanitizer before I use them. And then, yeah, just a little extra carbonation, but release the pressure on the keg so you're pouring slowly and gently, and then go and cap just... You know, be Johnny on the spot, show a certain amount of alacrity with what you're doing, and I think you're fine. Um, I don't think you need to do anything fancy in order to correct for your carbonation. And like I said, I've known plenty of people doing things with just picnic taps, particularly if you're just trying to do something for short term. But there have been a lot of people who've won competitions with bottles filled from picnic taps as well. Just slow, low, gentle, and cold, and a little extra carbonation in the keg. What about you? I do it just a bit differently. Uh, I start with a number two, I think it is, maybe two and a half, uh, one-hole stopper that fits right into a beer bottle. I run a piece of vinyl tubing through it as opposed to using a racking cane or something like that. Uh, make sure the tubing coming out the bottom of the stopper is long enough to reach the bottom of the bottle. I... Uh, Stick that contraption in, you know, the tubing coming out at the top of the stopper goes into my picnic tap. Uh, I also, like you, uh, tend to carb the beer just a hair higher in the keg, although I haven't done that sometimes and it seems to have worked fine. So I begin by getting my bottles cold after sanitizing them. Um, I... Uh, insert the stopper into the top of the bottle and making sure it's seated and open the picnic tap. Now that will fill the bottle about halfway through. Um, and I don't know if I said I purged the bottles with CO2, but I do. Anyway, so, uh, so you seat the stopper in the bottle, you open the picnic tap, the bottle will fill about half or maybe a third of the way full before the back pressure stops it. Then you take your thumb and just very slightly crack that stopper so that the beer continues to fill, but very slowly. And then, like Drew said, you just cap it immediately. And I have had extremely good luck like that uh, with it maintaining carbonation oh, for at least a month or so. And when I've entered those bottles into a competition, no one has ever made a comment about the carbonation. So I assume that it's working. And that whole setup costs maybe a couple bucks. Yep. Well, although you do have to be careful when you do that, that little pressure release there that you don't do what I've done in the past when I've done things like that and spray beer everywhere. Well, you know what, man? For once, uh, I think maybe I did it right and and didn't spray my beer in my face. 
Yeah, that is the one trick about that little manual process. But yeah, I mean, effectively, you're making a very sort of poor man's counter-pressure filler just without any fancy gadgets attached to it. Right, and I found that the that method with cracking the stopper works far better than just sticking, like, say, a racking cane into an unsealed bottle. Yeah, and really the trick here out of all this sort of stuff – either counter-pressure filling or with a beer gun or any other sort of homemade sort of device, what you're really trying to do in all those cases is get your beer flow as smooth and as laminar into the bottle as you can. So you get less disturbance, you get less gas coming out. Counter-pressure filler, you know, controls the, the pressure to allow you to move a little bit faster. The beer gun or a lot of the homemade devices, what they're really trying to do is they're trying to use enough line or enough, enough pressure resistance in the in the draft pour to get you so that you're basically at a zero differential when you come out the t- the end in the bottle. Uh, so that's correct. So that's the real key is smooth flow into a cold bottle. Maybe a little extra carbonation if you're paranoid, and you know just don't dawdle. And and purge that bottle before you fill it. Yeah, absolutely. Pur- purging should always be a given. So there you go. That's what we do. Beer gun is a nice to have, not necessary to have, but as long as you know the techniques that you're trying to nail. So I guess you get another one here, huh? I guess so. This one comes in from Rob McDonald in Queensland, Australia via email. And Rob says, dropping you a line from Queensland, Australia. I really enjoy the episodes and especially like the brew files, which fits my commute time. And also the full episodes that I listen to while I'm engaged in brewing related activities. While you guys were in Australia, did you encounter the no-chill method of cooling wort? It's kind of a dichotomy there, isn't it? (laughs) This method involves putting the boiling wort into sanitized cubes or 22-liter food-safe containers and sealing them up. Personally, I then check these into my pool, and they'll cool to pitching temp in about four to six hours. I like it as it saves water, which can be pretty scarce in this big dry land. Would love to hear your thoughts on this method, and if you're ever in southeast Queensland, I would love to catch up for a beer. Well, so would I, because I always <laughs> like to catch up for a beer. And yeah, when we were in Australia, we totally heard about no-chill. I mean, we've heard about no-chill in the past, but here in the States, no-chill is not so much of a thing. And when I remember when we were giving our talks and doing the podcast down there, we asked people, like, hey, show of hands, how many people are doing a no-chill method? And I don't know, in that room, it was it felt like two-thirds to three-quarters of the people raised their hand? Yeah, more than that. It was nearly unanimous. Right. So, as a resolution for this year, and I know we didn't talk about Brewer's resolutions this year, but as a resolution for this year, particularly since I live in California where uh, we have upcoming water restrictions where we're going to be kind of operating under the same sort of rules that folks in Australia do, uh, my resolution for this year is I'm going to play around with no-chill and to that effect, I do actually have a five-gallon or 22-liter PET jerry can that is sitting in my garage waiting for my next brew, and i got to decide a couple of things that I'm going to tackle with it. And I know, obviously, at some point, I've got to tackle a hoppy beer because that's what a lot of us care about here in the States, but I'm, I'm trying to figure out where I might want to start, and I think I'm going to just start with my experimental blonde just to see how that does in no-chill. But yeah, we've heard a lot about it. I haven't had a lot of, uh, you know, I haven't had any experience actually playing with it. So I am totally uh, on board to give it a shot because uh, California is mighty dry and Oregon's only going to lend us so much water. Yeah, and we we not only heard a lot about it in Australia, we tasted a lot of beers that were made that way. And they were uniformly great. Uh, you know, it, 
so great that it kind of allayed any of my fears or skepticism about the method. Uh, I don't really have to worry about water much because I have a well that uh, provides me with lots and lots of great water. But I'm still interested in the process. And I have to admit, I've done something a bit similar. Uh, like when I brew with my Zymatic, I take the keg of hot wort and just toss it into the chest freezer overnight. And, you know, that's kind of the same thing as taking a jerry can of hot wort and putting it into your swimming pool for a few hours. Uh, I think that probably the issue down there is not only a severe water shortage, but uh, I don't know how many... I mean, do you remember talking to a lot of people who used, like, chest freezers or something like that for fermentation? Not off the top of my head, but I don't recall having very many of those conversations, so... Yeah, right. I mean, I'm sure people do, but I don't think that it's quite as ubiquitous as it is uh, here. Well, so, and, I mean, all you, I think all you have to do is look at you know, the number of devices that are showing up down there to do things like the glycol-jacketed uh, fermenters. Yeah, or or the uh, the brew jacket, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's that seemed to be really popular down there, too. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I, I would say that if you are considering doing this no-chill method, uh, our experience in talking to people and tasting beers is that it works great, and uh, we're going to try and get some personal experience on it here pretty soon. Yeah, and the, the one thing I, I still want to try and figure out for my own is making very aromatic hoppy beers, because there seem to be some tricks to get around that problem. Yeah, right, and we have some email from people who did that, uh, you know, about how they, they go about doing that, and we tried some, like, IPAs where, that were extremely aromatic and had great hop flavor to them. Yep. All right. Next question. This one is for you, Denny. This is our last process question. It comes from Steve Sullivan, who writes in via email. And he says, how does oxygen damage beer? I get confused about the role oxygen plays in the brewing process because I heard you're supposed to oxygenate the wort before adding your yeast. But at what point do you need to start keeping oxygen away? I also get a little tripped up from mead makers who say that oxygen can add character to their mead. Can oxidation add character to certain styles of beer as well? Please help me get some clarification on this topic. Well, Steve, uh, I'm not going to be able to go through the exact chemical process of how oxygen damages beer because I'm just not smart enough to do that. But I'll tell you that oxygen before fermentation begins can be a good thing because the yeast uses it to synthesize the sterols, these fatty acids that it uses to keep the cell walls flexible to encourage cell budding. Now, you know, I don't do a lot of oxygenation because I pitch a lot of yeast in the first place so that uh, there's not a whole lot of need for that. But theoretically, that's why you oxygenate before fermentation starts. Once fermentation has started, and I believe kind of the rule of thumb is like up to 18 hours after fermentation starts, uh, adding oxygen is okay. After that 18 hours, you don't want to do it. There are a lot of people who brew extremely high-gravity beers and oxygenate, uh, again, during the very first part of fermentation. But once fermentation is really firmly underway, uh, you don't want to do that because the yeast uh, probably don't have as big a need to uh, bud, and they won't be taking up that oxygen as quickly. In terms of oxidation adding character, yes, that's true to certain styles. And probably me, I don't make mead, so, but I would guess that it's kind of the same thing. There are certain styles, and one that immediately comes to mind is something like a barley wine, uh, that, uh, 
it will add character to. I once uh, had entered a barley wine in the Oregon State Fair, uh, took first place for it, and one of the comments was that uh, oxidation has been very kind to this beer, meaning that it really enhanced the flavor. And just just over the Christmas holiday here, um, I popped open an old beer. I have a I have a habit of buying some North Coast old stock ale every year, and drinking one fresh and putting the others away and seeing how long I can let them sit. So the oldest one I had this year, I think, was five years old. It was from 2013, and I got some of the 2018 batch and tried them against each other, uh, not a whole glass of each, because then I wouldn't be conscious and able to compare. But I, I poured a little bit of each into different glasses, and I would definitely say that the beer that was five years old had slight oxidation, that it kind of mellowed and blended the flavors. Does that make any sense? It does. Yeah, I mean, and, and I definitely, I definitely preferred the five year old bottle against the brand new bottle. But again, that is a very strong beer, as is a barley wine, and American barley wines are also very hoppy. Uh, the one that I won the Oregon State Fair with was five years old also. So depending on the style of beer, oxidation can help it. If you've got a nice IPA there, oxidation is not going to help that. Yeah, and when I've done really big beers, think like my Falcons cause and whatnot. I've done oxygen into the beer within, you know, the first 48 hours, you know, a couple of times. And that's yeah. just, and that's just because it's a big damn beer and it needs all the help it can, it can get to have strong, healthy yeast. So yeah, there's a lot of times when you can, and just think about it this way. Almost. A, there are a good number of staling reactions and you know other sorts of chemical reactions that can happen in beer that are effectively fueled or energized by or activated by oxygen i mean there's a reason why you know we always talk about oxidizers and antioxidants right you know being part of your health routine uh, oxygen can be extraordinarily corrosive or at least it can be extraordinarily aiding to things that are corrosive and that also includes things that will damage flavor you know malt characters hop characters in particular you know, those oils that we love. So yeah, oxygen, it's a beast. We do want to try and keep it at a minimum once you get past the point where the yeast are reproducing. So if your yeast are no longer reproducing, stop with the oxygen, minimize your, minimize your exposure. That's the reason why we talk about purging bottles, purging kegs, you know, purging everything down the line, just to minimize the amount of dissolved oxygen that you have as you're going into package or as you're in storage. So and again, yeah, Denny's right. Stronger beers, uh, big, old, strong uh, styles are great. Mead makers, most of the time when you hear mead makers talking about oxygen in, in mead as being a positive, you're looking at like people who are talking like old school meads or like the Polish meads. You know, Polish meads are infamous for very, very strong oxidative characters, uh, sherry tones and everything else. So, yeah, oxygen is absolutely critical to that part of that process for those styles. There you go. I think that's all the process questions that we have, I think it's time for us to move on to recipe questions. And we'll do that right after this quick break. Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family hop farms to the world's finest brewers. 
Yakima Chief's cryo-hops represent the most innovative technology in hop processing, using a patent-pending cryogenic separation process which preserves the components of each hop fraction. Cryo-hops pellets provide intense hop flavor and aroma, reduced vegetal flavors, and increased yield. Available now to commercial and home brewers. Learn more at yakimachief.com. Well, we've been through general, we've been through ingredients, we've been through process. Uh, I guess the next logical place to go is recipes. Yay. So this, <laughs> yeah, this next question comes in from a mystery texter from Canada. If, if you send us a text at 626-765-1AL, please include your name so we'll know who to blame for making us look stupid. So our mystery texter from Canada says... Hi, guys. I brewed up a grisette and fermented it using New World Saison yeast from Escarpment Labs in Gulf, Ontario. I probably butchered that name, but there it is. I kegged and carved the beer, and it's more watery than Bud Light. What can I do? I've added maltodextrin to other beers that this happened to, but the yeast blend has Brett in it. Please help. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no maltodextrin with Brett. That's that's not going to be a good thing. Um... This is a, a real challenge. Uh, one, I actually kind of jealous because I'd like to play with the yeast from Escarpment Labs. Uh, that's another one of those Saison uh, sources that I haven't had a chance to get my hands on yet. I'm trying to think, what would I do? Okay, you can't... With the Brett, the Brett will... It, I mean, look, you could add maltodextrin, keep the keg cold, and just drink the damn thing fast. That would work. Um, trying to think... A lot of carbonation will kind of give you fluffiness, but here you're missing a lot of your body anyway. So then you just kind of become more like alcohol, alcoholic soda water. How about how about brewing another batch and blending them? Well, you could do that, but I, I suspect our our mystery texture here wants to fix this batch and just keep moving. Um, well, it, you can fix it by blending it with another batch. Yes, you can. I know we always recommend that, but so few people ever do that. So I'm just trying to find a single source solution. <laughs> well, then, then they should. I mean, I think, I think that's one of the points there. If so few people do it. We ought to start recommending it more because it really is a, a good method of, mm -hmm. uh, you know, either getting another beer out of two or you can, you know, if you're blending a bad, if you have a really bad beer, adding good beer to it, is not going to make that bad beer good. No, but in this but, case, it doesn't seem like it's bad. It's just disappointing. Yeah, no, that's that's what I mean. You know, this one is not bad. It wasn't just quite what he wanted. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can even go out and buy some commercial saisons and just blend by the glass until you kind of got something that seemed interesting to you mm -hmm. and then try and brew something like that commercial saison. Well, uh, well, I mean, or what, just keep buying it and blending in the glass. That's an awfully expensive habit, particularly in Canada. Um yeah. So yeah, if I if you're gonna brew and blend, what I would do is I'd brew something heavy with oats, for instance, if you want to keep it in the saison world, because then you'll have a lot of that extra pro uh, proteinaceous material in there, a lot of that extra mouthfeel. 
Um, that would that could help at least until Brett tries to attack the stuff in the oats. The other thing is if you don't want to if you don't want to go and blend in another batch of beer. The other thought is maybe try taking a glass of it and mixing some uh, just a, a pinch of say calcium chloride into the into the beer. Yeah, I see, had that thought too. Yeah, see if that actually helps as well. And if it does, then you know you can blend in some calcium chloride into the keg. I don't think it's going to be perfect. It's not going to take you from watery to you know a rich mouthfeel, but it may be just enough to kind of push you back over the line. Because after all, saisons should be relatively dry and relatively thin as well. So yeah, there there's two main thoughts: either brew something. I would probably go like I said, heavy on the oats, or and blend that in. And hey, you know, this way you could have three beers. You could have, you know, the watery beer, the blended beer, and the OD beer, and three three different beers running at the same time from essentially two batches. Not a bad plan. The other one is uh, go and you know try the calcium chloride trick. That might actually help a little bit because yeah, I don't think maltodextrin is going to help you unless you just keep everything cold and don't let the Brett try and eat it and drink it quick. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think that the uh, pinch of calcium chloride in a glass is uh, at least worth a try because it's a, an easy starting point and stands at least a, a chance of working. Yep. Now we're going to go to New Zealand. Denny's yay, favorite place. Yay, yay, I'm ready to go to New Zealand anytime, man. And a message came in on Facebook from James Morgan, and he says, here's a question for the pair of you. What is your favorite slept-on style to brew, and when was the last time you made it? Okay, well, I'm not familiar with the phrase slept-on, uh, well, uh, except in relation to a bed, but... Uh, well, I, think just means, I think he just means, you know, what's a style that nobody's brewing that you really like to brew that, yeah, and when's the last time that we made it? Yeah, right. Uh, for me, I would have to say it's an alt beer. Uh, there are a lot more people brewing them now than there used to be. But 20 years ago when I started brewing, almost nobody was making alts. So I got heavily into making them because I could enter competitions and do really well because I was the only one. Um, so I would say that probably an alt beer is a style that too few people are familiar with and brew enough. And I really, really love uh, my last one was probably about a year ago. I tend to make them in the fall and winter. And uh, for various reasons, I have not gotten around to making one this year. So it's been about a year. But uh, I've been thinking about cranking one out. Uh, on the other hand, it's been so long since I brewed. There's about 20 different beers that I've been thinking about <laughs> cranking out. So uh, I'll try and keep the alt beer in there, though. Yeah, and if you want to go listen, Denny did a Brew Files episode all about alt beer, so you can go dig in deep into exactly what he's doing. And to that point, my favorite styles I've talked about on the Brew Files, you know, the cream ale, which was, what, episode two of the Brew Files? Something like that, yeah. And uh, American cream ale, and then also uh, English mild, which are two two of my absolute favorites, that's the reason why I, I talked about them, and they don't get brewed nearly enough, although I've been seeing more of them recently, too, so yay. Um I brew those pretty much all the time, but I think the last time I made a cream ale was this summer, and the last time I made a mild was this fall. So there you go. But if we're going to reach, if we're going to go for something that that I haven't brewed in a while, then I haven't talked about. You know, I think one of the ones I actually really miss, and I haven't brewed in forever, is a good American red ale. You know, I think when I got started in drinking craft beer, you know, one of the biggest one of the biggest ones out there was Red Seal, 
You know, that was one of the big, one of the big beers that you could get all the time. And, you know, in a lot of ways, I have to admit, I kind of miss it. And I don't know if it's nostalgia or if it's just that, that combination of that sort of rich malt with all those American hops, those very aggressive American hops. Um, but I kind of feel like I need to go brew one of those because I haven't been seeing those in a while. Yeah. I, I can't even remember the last time I had one. It's probably been 20 years. It was one of the foundational styles of American craft brewing and now it's gone. Or almost gone. Hmm. So there you go. Uh, so like I said, you can go listen to the brew files. You can catch Denny's tips on alts. You can catch mine on cream ale and on mild. And I guess I'll have to do one on red ale here before too long. <laughs> yeah, man. I think you probably should. Okay. The final recipe question is for Drew, and it comes in from Jay Brigatti on Facebook, who says, Hello, EXB gents. I need some advice here. I have some grains I milled last week and didn't get around to brewing. I was planning on brewing next week, uh, New England IPA. Problem is, I talked to a friend today about supporting him in his journey to get clean and sober. Agreed to go dry January with him as a means of support. So my dilemma is, obviously, if I brew this New England IPA soon, I'll have to drink it fresh, which would ruin my dry January. I'm trying to figure out my options. Letting down my friend is not an option. And some ideas I've had, brew it in February and risk the oxidation of the milled grains, freeze the grains, or brew it as an imperial pilsner. It's mostly pilsner malt anyway, and let it lager in my basement for all of January. What advice do you kind and intelligent folks have? I appreciate any responses. Well, Jay, first off, good on you. Congratulations on supporting your friend. And That's right. And we actually did talk about this on Facebook with Jay uh, earlier. My answer is brewed in February. You know, you're talking about risking the, the oxidizing of the milled grains, the experimental results that we've done, the experimental results that Brewlosophy has done, you know, shows that milled grain is a lot hardier than people tend to think of it. So just keep the grains cool and dry. You know, some don't, don't let them get moist and damp and sticky. That's a bad idea. And which, which means don't put them in the freezer. Yeah. Don't put them in the freezer and, you know, just keep them cool and dry. Brew in February and enjoy the the warmth that you have of supporting your friend while also enjoying your New England IPA. Yeah, uh, my experience is that uh, I had grains milled for a Pilsner at one point and for a variety of reasons did not get around to it for five months. And when I finally did, uh, it tasted just as good as if I had uh, done it right away. Uh, the grains were kept cool, dry. And uh, it, it worked just actually fine. I th as I recall, when we did our experiment, uh, somebody did research and found that Brees quotes a two-year shelf life for their pre-milled grain as long as the bag is closed. And, you know, so a, a month is not going to hurt you, Jay. Yep, I agree. And I know Jay had asked about, you know, what about the oats? And I think even the oats will be fun. So no worries. Yeah. Yep. Cool and dry is the key. I know. And that's the end of the recipe questions. Short recipe segment this time. I think it's uh, I think it's time to get on to our last segment here. That's right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll be talking yeast. So please stick around. Are you having trouble finding enough time to homebrew and give attention to the other important things in your life? Is your newest brewed IPA experiment coming at the expense of other obligations? Don't neglect partner or pet. Brew with the Genesis Fermenter. Learn why at genesisfermenter.com and find them wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. 
This winter welcomes our private collection strains for the first quarter of 2019. Inspired by the Pacific Northwest's ever-changing forecast of wintry mix and available exclusively at Y-East. Our 1217 West Coast IPA, 2001 Pilsner Urkel H strain, and 2352 Munich Lager II provide balanced characteristics for styles as varied as the weather ahead. Whatever your plans may be for brewing, we hope to inspire new seasonal traditions with crisp, drinkable beers among the rich stouts and barrel-aged behemoths during these colder months. These strains are available January through March at your local homebrew shop. Find out more about which styles pair best with these strains at yeastlab.com. Our final segment today is all about yeast. And the first question goes to Drew from James Lloyd in Virginia via Facebook. James says, I brewed my first Saison recently. Everything went according to plan. All grain, Y yeast 3711, fermentation topped out north of 80 degrees Fahrenheit and went for just over two weeks. Finished up at 1.005. Aroma was amazing at this point. I had the idea of using some locally sourced honey in the secondary. This is where it all went south. Yeah, those brilliant ideas, man. After a couple of days, it was as if I had a young lager fermenting. Sulfur was dominant. I let it go a week longer at room temp, and the intensity dropped a bit, but it's still there. I went ahead and cold crashed and kegged one of the two five-gallon batches. Uh, I brewed ten gallons and split. I've been degassing three or four times a day from the keg, but still getting the bad notes and a little of the good. My buddy Chad suggested I reach out to you. Something about Drew knowing about crappy-smelling beer. Anyway, thanks for any thoughts or ideas you might have. Yeah, okay. First, James, ask Chad if he wants to have a cucumber beer. <laughs> so we ran it. We hung out with uh, uh, Chad you know, uh, before one of the conferences, I think it's St. Paul. And so cucumber was a running joke for us, but, uh, I, I actually uh, spent some time talking with James about this. And I mean, obviously something about the honey introduced that sulfur tone, uh, big surprise. You know, maybe it's the introduction of the sugar, you know, and the yeast and all that fun stuff where it's just the yeast were kicking out of sulfur tone. Didn't have enough time to clean it up before cold crashing and everything else. Uh, my advice was to either, you know, let the, let the beer sit a little bit longer or to, you know, do an active CO2 scrub. So James talked about doing degassing three or four times a day. Uh, what I've done sometimes in the past when I've had a beer that's had a very strong sulfur tone or a very strong diastole tone that I couldn't clean up otherwise, you know, just bubbling CO2 at a low rate up through the keg and allowing it to come out the PRV can do wonders actually for reducing and scrubbing out a lot of those aromas. It's never going to be perfect if, you know, if it's that much of an entrenched problem, but you'd be surprised at how much it can do to actually clean up a problem beer. So those were my two pieces of advice was either, you know, either do an active CO2 scrub or give it a little bit more time and see what happens. James ended up writing back. I said, okay, so I took a keg of my Saison to this party in my hood. It was about eight to 9% ABV with that honey added. So that was a big 
big dang beer. And he says, they drank the hell out of it. It cleared up nicely, and after all the badgies settled out, it was an amazingly satisfying beer. The keg is empty, and I left a house full of happy customers. So, What, what I wonder about is if maybe the yeast was a bit uh, tired out after the initial fermentation, and when uh, James put the honey in mm-hmm. with no more yeast... Those kind of aromas were created, but by the time the uh, honey was fully fermented out, the yeast had cleaned it up. Yeah, I, I think that's probably what ended up happening. But you know, or you know, who knows? There may have been something sourced in the honey itself. But given the fact that it cleared up over time, I would suspect yeah, it's probably a yeast thing. Yeah, right. And as we've discussed before, if there's nothing to ferment in there, there's nothing for the yeast to work with to clean up the beer. So my guess is that maybe the yeast just didn't have enough oomph and it just took a while to get through that honey. Indeed. So, but the good news, life goes on, the yeast cleaned things up, and the beer was served. Right. Exactly. Next question for Denny comes from uh, Dominic Duffner in St. Louis via email. He says, a longtime listener and enjoyer of the show. Also excited to see you in Asheville this March at the Friday Brewing Experiment Session. Yay. Don't forget, guys, you can go join our... uh, our BYO session by going to byobootcamp.com and use offer code experimental brew. And you can come join Marshall, Denny and I for, you know, talking about experiments and all the stuff we've learned by doing experiments. Um, so uh, Dominic's question goes on to say, I had two questions for the upcoming Q and a show, but one was already answered a few weeks ago by Denny. Why flavors continue to develop and change after fermentation stops. So, uh, <laughs> Hey, look at that. We, we anticipated. <laughs> How important is stepped slash increased temperature regiments to brewing and yeast health? I've seen recipes that have something like start at 60 degrees for two days, then increase to 65 degrees for two days, and increase to 70 for two days. I always start at the lowest temperature for the yeast, sometimes even a couple degrees lower. Pitch and keep at a low temperature for two days. Previously, I would do a gradual stepped up temp control of a couple degrees every two days, but I had a couple beers that didn't attenuate as much as I would have liked. I suspect the yeast activity may have been throttled too much by the temp controller. More recently, I just keep it at the low end a couple of days and then just let it go, with my only temperature setting being an, oh crap, that's too hot setting, in case it gets too warm. I'm also wondering how necessary is it to apply heat if the temp stays low, excluding hot strains like Saison's and some Belgians. Sorry, Drew. Eh, you're forgiven. I had an IPA I make with Safil 05 that I started at about 58, and then let go with a blanket on it. It never got any higher than 62 degrees due to my basement being colder in the winter. The blow-off tub had vigorous activity throughout the first four days after fermentation started and still bubbled steadily the next few days. Okay, and second question, do I need to worry about light exposure to fermenting wort? I had to bring my Belgian blonde upstairs to ferment due to my cold basement. I added a little heat to this by putting a carboy in front of a heat vent. Typically, I put a black garbage bag over a carboy if there's ambient light around, but I didn't want the bag to melt. Do I need to worry about a day's worth of lighting affecting my beer during peak fermentation? Last question, is Denny bringing his ukulele to Asheville? I'm on the pro ukulele bandwagon, so hoping he does. So there you go, buddy. You got a couple questions. Uh, Last question first. Uh, Maybe. No guarantees. Uh, We'll see. Okay, so here we go. How important is stepped increased temperature to brewing and yeast health? Uh, Moderately. Uh, It mainly is going to help you get a beer done faster. I don't know if it's necessarily going to make it better, and I don't think it has anything to do with yeast health. Uh, I certainly don't believe that uh, 
your stepping up the temperature had anything to do with your beer that didn't attenuate as much. I think that's just a coincidence. I don't think I've had a temperature-controlled chest freezer for more than five years. And before that, I would stick my beers in a closet in my guest room in a tub of water, and I would either put in ice packs or an aquarium heater uh, to maintain the temperature. And it would just sit there at the same temperature, and it worked really, really well. Once I got the chest freezer and temperature controller, I was able to do step temperatures, and I find out that my beer is ready a lot faster but it hasn't really made any change to the quality of the beer. My usual fermentation regimen, uh, I guess I developed this using 1450, and I use it for pretty much all other ALEs, is I start at 63 for maybe four or five days. Then I raise it up to 72 for two or three days. And then I crash it down to 33 for any place from three days or until I get around to dealing with it again. Uh, and, you know, if I'm really on top of things, I can have a beer grained glass in, say, 11 or 12 days. Uh, but again, I don't see it as changing the quality of the beer, just the amount of time it takes to be ready. Uh, and I would say to add to that, I mean, like, I know you exclude the saison yeast, but the reason why I do that with the saison yeast is because I want to control yeah, ester and fusel for, uh, formation early on in the process, and that helps with a lot well, of Well, and, and that's exactly that's exactly why I do it too. I don't like real estery beers, so I want to keep the temperature low until I'm pretty much past the chance of getting esters from a warmer temperature. Okay, second question. I'm wondering how necessary it is to apply heat if the temp stays low. Uh, let me. IPA never got any higher than sixty-two. Uh, and had still, you know, I would say that if you're getting good fermentation by the temperature staying low, then it's not important to increase the the temperature at all. Uh, did I miss something there? No, I mean, the problem is, remember, most of the time for us homebrewers, we're really worried about numbers. And the yeast doesn't give a damn about the number. And that yeah. includes temperature. So if the yeast is performing well, you have enough yeast health and activity that you're actually getting the fermentation characteristics that you want out of it, including attenuation, including ester formation and all that. Uh, don't worry about the temperature, but you may want to note down whether or not you liked what you did and you know try and see if you can get there again. Right. And the last question is about light exposure to fermenting wort. Yeah, you want to avoid that. Uh, you can uh, have really, really bad effects. Uh I can't remember the exact chemical process, but uh, the the light and the yeast uh, interact with the hops to uh, create mercaptans, which you know that's that lovely skunk smell that you get. So uh, the hop the hoppier the beer is, and the more intense the direct light is, uh, the more problem you're going to get. I've had a, a glass of IPA sitting out on my deck in direct sunlight, skunking as little as five minutes. So yeah. Keep keep light, especially direct light, uh, away from your beer. Well, and I was going to say, so in the question, he talks about, you know, ambient light. You know, so as long as the light isn't like, you know, you know, hey, you know, I've got a really intense LED bulb flashing straight into the carboy or this thing sitting in a window getting, you know, direct, you know, winter sun. You're probably going to be OK, but at the same time, yeah, it's usually just better to cover it up. So if you if you don't if you don't want to put a trash bag next to the heat vent, which okay I get, uh, use a black t-shirt, a blanket, yeah, anything like that. Yep. Uh, 
Yeah, and uh, I for a BJCP exam I administered one time, I took a six-pack of Corona and put it under fluorescent lights for five days, and that beer was the definition of skunky. Well, that beer already starts that way. <laughs> <laughs> no, it didn't, because I tried one first, but... Uh, well, no, I think you just enhanced its own native characteristics. Yeah, I think I think that's probably a lot more like it. Right. Drew gets this next question from Leif Hoagland in South Carolina. It came in via email. So Leif says, I recently made seven and a half gallons of a 1060 Hefeweizen. In an effort to not be so dogmatic about my brewing, I decided to try the shaken, not stirred method of yeast propagation. I've been chilling my beer to below 80 degrees with an immersion chiller, then transferring to my chest freezer fermentation chamber to get it down to the low to mid-60s before I pitch my yeast, which usually takes me about 10 to 12 hours. So I figured I'd make the starter from some DME I had while I mashed. Then it dawned on me that I could just be lazy and take some wort from the boil after 15 minutes or so and cool it in pitch. So that's what I did. I took 500 mils and chilled it, oxygenated with Puro 2, and stuck it on my stir plate for good measure. I pitched the yeast about 10 hours later, and the beer turned out fine with good attenuation. So my question is, do you guys see any inherent problem with doing it this way? Making starters is not my favorite activity in the world, and this seems like a reasonable way around spending 45 minutes of my time. Well, no. I don't see any problems with what you did, because it worked. <laughs> And that's just what we said a minute ago, right? If it works, then it's the right thing to do. Uh, the one thing, of course, I would say is that, you know, you said that you were going to try the shaken, not stirred method, but then you put it on a stir plate. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, not, not quite shaken, not stirred, but whatever. You still produced yeast. Um, yeah, there's absolutely no problems with, with you doing exactly what you talked about. As long as you have faith that your sanitation is going to hold for that period of time that it takes for the yeast start to take off. As long as that's the case, uh, yeah, you can totally do this. And I know plenty of people who do this. And of course, I will also refer people to my, you know, my hatred of making starters. And so therefore my method of making pressure can starters so that when I need to make a starter, I can just go pop the top and do it. So no problems doing this. Um, like I said, the big thing is I'm not even sure you need to auctionate it with Puro 2. Yeah. You know, in this particular case, the shake and not stirred method, for instance, doesn't use it. And you're already using us in this particular case, you said you're using a stir plate. So I, I think the O2 may be a little overkill. Um, yeah, but yeah, the, the base idea of taking some of your early wort that you've already started to boil and using that go for it. The other thing that you can also do, if you don't want to, if you don't want to waste, you know, precious, precious good beer is almost all of us will have some sort of second runnings that we're not using, you know, some sort of last little bit. And remember, yeast starter doesn't have to have a lot of you know oomph to it so if you just take that second runnings and go throw it on a in a pot on a kitchen burner or something or on an induction plate or whatever you have you can do the exact same thing and keep your precious sweet wort you know going while you use sort of you know your throwaway wort to go make your yeast growth yeah the, the only possible downside to that is you don't get quite as long for the yeast to ferment before you pitch it but well but he's already waiting 10 hours post boil so yeah right that's true that's true i mean so you're missing out on you know what 30 minutes yeah so uh, there you go leaf uh, that's exactly what i'd say and thank you for both the questions that you sent in our next question comes in from matt johnson uh, who wrote in via email i thought of a good question while listening to the last episode that i've never seen discussed before i brew in a 30 liter speedle fermenter when my beer is done fermenting i cold crash for a few days add gelatin, 
wait a few more days, and then keg my beer by pressurizing the fermenter and pushing out the ball valve at the bottom. The design of the speedle combined with the gelatin makes my beer come out super clear. I've always just cleaned out the fermenter afterwards and dumped all the yeast in trube. Now for the question. Can I reuse a yeast cake that is sitting under a layer of gelatin? Could you just rack new wort on top of the cake? Would you need to agitate the cake to break up the gelatin? Should I just keep doing what I'm doing? Got any thoughts? I have no freaking idea because I've never used gelatin. <laughs> but if I was going to guess, I would say, I think if, if I was going to try this, what I would do is, yes, I would agitate the cake to break up the gelatin and then just pitch on top of it. Although generally uh, when I use slurry, I don't use the entire slurry from the batch. So I might have run some out before I pitched onto it. But my guess with no personal experience to back it up is, yes, if you use gelatin, you can still reuse the yeast. And I'm going to come in directly behind that and say no. So at least from commercial experience and from other things I've done, gelatin, gelatin or other clarifiers, not not like Irish moss and bright break or, or all that sort of stuff, but like active clearing agents are generally a bad idea to have into your yeast cake. So a lot of times what you'll see in professional breweries, that's why they take the yeast off the cone first before they go and add any, any clearance. So I wouldn't do this. What I would do, what I, what I would actually advocate for is a change in your process. I would say, rack the beer off, leave the yeast cake in the speedle if you want, or you know pull it out and clean everything up, and then do your gelatin fining in another vessel. That way, you it, one, you're going to have less less stuff dropping out in a way, and you'll have cleaner yeast to reuse in, in other places. But yeah, would it work? Probably. Is it the ideal thing to do? I don't think so. Yeah, you know, and that makes sense to me too. Uh, he could he could uh, just dump all the yeast out, save it, and then put the gelatin right into his fermenter and do the same thing he's doing now too. Yep. Uh, so, but I mean, you, well, and remember, unless you're going super mondo big, a yeast cake is overkill for you know for fermentation. So you're not needing the whole yeast cake anyway. So yeah, just get yeah. some of your yeast and go. Yep. The next question is for Drew from Jeremy Wickham, one of our Igors. Jeremy says, I like the idea of making a lower gravity beer before making a high gravity beer. Talk about efficiency. My question is, I use carboys for all of my fermentations. How would you recommend removing the yeast cake from a carboy? If I were to rack as much beer as possible off the yeast cake, it would be hard to remove the yeast cake as I may leave a lot behind. It's not that I'm afraid of pitching on top of the yeast cake, but as that makes Drew tick a little bit, I'd like to know how he'd remove the cake from the carboy. Very carefully. <laughs> now, so what I've done in the past is if I've been super efficient about my racking and not left enough wort behind in the in the carboy to, you know, pick things up, I'll add some D I'll add some of my starter wort that I've already made, you know, those pressure can jars that I just talked about. And I'll use that and just swirl it up. I'll make sure everything on the, the carboy is sanitized. So I'll even flame sanitize the, the lip of the carboy. You know, just you know, put some good old alcohol down there and hit it with a torch. And then I'll take that into another vessel. So I'll take it into a growler or something. 
And that's literally all I do if I'm taking it out. I've heard people suggest that's a good use for like Budweiser or, yeah. or some macro swill. Well, I mean, Just, as long as you sanitize the cans and make sure that everything's nice and clean. Yeah, because you know that the beer inside of it's going to be fine. So, yeah, if, if you rack all the beer out of your carboy, and I, I don't, I usually leave, you know, maybe like a cup or so behind yeah. in order to get it swirled up. But if if you got all the beer out of there, you could just take a can of cheap mega swill and pour it in there and use that to uh, to slush things around and uh, pour it out into a sanitized container and keep it until you're ready to use it again. Yeah, and and I've done that before too. You know, it is pretty pretty efficient, but I tend to have starter wort on hand, so I'll just use it just to you know give the yeast a little extra kick in the pants before we get moving. So that's what we do. It's pretty easy and straightforward and, you know, nothing, nothing wrong with it. Our next question comes from Jeff Rose, who wrote in via email. Denny, do I still oxygenate the main wort before pitching the Vitality or shaken, not stirred starter? Uh, it, it certainly can't hurt. The more healthy yeast you pitch, the less need there is for it. I don't specifically oxygenate the wort. You know, I, I don't have that step. I used to use like a mixer, uh, uh, wine degasser to, uh, whip some oxygen into the wort before I pitched. These days I pump from the kettle into the fermenter and let it splash into the fermenter. And so I don't really need to do a separate oxygenation step, but I still, uh, get plenty of oxygen in there. And again, since I pitch so much healthy yeast, that uh, I don't really worry about it too much. A little isn't going to hurt anything. Yeah, and I, being the paranoid sort of person that I do, still do at least a baseline aeration. But what can you do? That's me. <laughs> Drew Drew refuses to be pragmatic, uh, and I live by it. Well, I mean, look, I admit there are still some ritualistic aspects to my brewing. Totally. Yeah, and and I guess I've gotten I've gotten over that and do what I need to do and nothing else. Well, so when I'm as, just when different as, styles. When I'm as old as cranky as you are, I'll probably be the same way. <laughs> Last question. All right, this one goes to Drew. It comes in from Eric Brumbaugh via email. Drew, first, I just want to say that I love the podcast. Since I started home brewing, this podcast has helped me become a better brewer. So thank you to both you and Denny. Also, I have a question in regards to the yeast starter episode from the Brew Files. In that episode, you stated that you dumped the oxidized wort from your stir plate starter. This confuses me as to your rationale. As someone who does aluminum foil on their saisons and doesn't worry about it then, why would you worry about it for your starter? I personally pitch at high croissant from a stir plate method when I do a starter. In the future, though, I'm looking forward to trying the shaken, not stirred method to see how it turns out. Thank you for your time. Also, doing the brew files was a good call. I love the concentrated segments that get into a higher detail than normal. Eric, thank you for that. You know, it's it's kind of a lot of work to do two shows, so it's nice to know that they're both appreciated. <laughs> yeah. And so why do I dump the starter wort and don't worry about oxidation when I'm doing my saisons with foil? Two reasons. Ritual. Go back to the last question. The other part is when I'm making a starter, particularly on a stir plate, I'm doing something that I'm intentionally agitating and pulling as much oxygen into as I can. So there, to my mind, there's a lot of oxygen damage to the wort, a lot of oxidation stuff. I don't necessarily want to have that mixed in. When I'm doing my saisons, the only agitation is coming from the fermentation 
And while the fermentation is active, it's outgassing CO2. So not a lot of oxygen is getting in to actually cause oxidation. So that's to me like the big difference. You know, a starter, you're intentionally bringing a lot of oxygen to, into the equation because you want it to make those sterols, you know, to make those nice, healthy, viable, strong, flexible yeast. You're not doing that in an active fermentation. But yeah, at the same time, I know Denny doesn't dump his work from his shaken, not stirred uh, starters. I know a lot of people who don't do it when they're doing stir plates. And if you're doing something in a high corrosion, absolutely, you, you're kind of defeating yourself if you're decanting off the wort. So for me, since I, uh, most of my starters are still done with the old school, you know, settle it out uh, type method, um, I have no problems decanting that wort and just leaving a little bit behind just to avoid any potential flavor impacts, even though I know that's somewhat questionable. Yeah, I, I have found definitely that uh, there is not nearly as much flavor impact on a shaken, not stirred starter as there is on a stir plate starter. Well, uh, because a shaken, not stirred starter, you're not constantly agitating for, you know, 24, right. 36 hours. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, you know, um, it just... It it just makes sense to uh, to decant if you're using a stir plate. Yep. So there you go. Last question. That is a whole bunch of questions up and down, and I feel pretty good. I think we did aote. Yeah, I think we did pretty well. Uh, I guess we'll find out when we get the mail in, huh? Yep. All right. Thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Uh, I'm on a whole bunch of different beer friends, including the world Don't forget that if you want to ask us questions, suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or even just bring it away, you can email us at podcastandexperimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to contact us each individually, I'm Ben at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And, of course, you can always leave us a voicemail or a text with your name, please, at 626-765-1AL. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.